from the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. In this episode, we're looking at one of the biggest news stories of the past month, social media and misinformation. Facebook, of course, dominated the headlines a few weeks ago, but the problem is much broader and has been going on far longer than many people realize. All right, uh, here with Tim Winninger, uh, Frank M. Fryman, Associate Professor of uh, Engineering uh, in the College of Engineering. Tim, thanks for, thanks for joining us. You know, I, um, we're talking about the subject of misinformation online, and I think for a lot of folks, um, this is a, an issue that has come up in the very recent past. Um, you know, you look at even just this month of, of October. Um, but you, I think it's important to point out right here at the start um, have been studying this for uh, a decade or more. Can you give us a, a little bit of background? How did you get into studying this issue? Yeah, so uh, first of all, thanks for having me, um, Andy. And uh, you're right, we've been studying this at Notre Dame and just uh, for a long time. I, I sometimes will tell people that I've been studying misinformation before it was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been uh, working in this space Oh, probably for, yeah, a little bit more than a decade now. Um, really since social media became kind of mainstream. Uh, one of the things that we, we had seen um, was especially with the rise of ISIS. And so we remember, if you think back now, just so, you know, 10, 15 years now, um, one of the big concerns globally was this idea of, of ISIS in the Middle East. And so they were taking over this kind of vacuum that was left over from the war in Iraq. And we were marveling, the Western world was marveling at their ability to recruit, especially online. And one of the things that we had seen was that in uh, various parts of Syria, there were entire buildings of people that they weren't fighters. They were kind of social media information warriors. Mm. And what they were doing was that they were creating really well put together, well-produced, beautiful, um, I wouldn't call it beautiful, but just really well-produced um, kind of advertisements for come join the fight in Syria for, um, you know, to be part of a, a brotherhood of, of fighters for, for this, this cause. Mm. And people, you know, they, it was really compelling for a lot of people, and so they came and joined. But what was really interesting was that when they produced this stuff and they put it on social media, um, they also had literally hundreds of people in coordination – sharing it, retweeting it, upvoting it, liking it, um, giving it the hearts. And if you have a handful of people working together, you can really drive a message if, if you do it in the right way. And so we were interested with that. To say, okay, how is ISIS so effective at moving and swinging opinion on social media? And so what we decided to do was a little experiment to see, well, how much impact, how much effect do votes uh, when I say vote, I mean like a like or a retweet or an upvote on if you're on Reddit or yep. a, a swipe right if you're on <laughs> a different. There's different ways of of, of giving votes um, sure. in social. Media. So I'm going to call it a vote. And so, um, how much impact does a single vote have in social media? Yep. And so we designed an experiment. We ran that experiment, and what we did is we just took the most recent post from social media, and then randomly, without looking at it, we um, voted on it. 
And then uh, sometimes we didn't. So, so as like in control, we just took a thing and we didn't vote on it. Because in science, you have to have a, a treatment and a control group. And the things that we voted, we, we liked or retweeted or upvoted, ended up being, um, and this is just one single vote, not like 300 people, but just one vote. It had a tremendous impact in the downstream effect. And so if I voted on this thing initially within the first you know, few minutes, then eventually it was, I think, something close to 25% more likely to reach the front page of Facebook or Twitter. So just one just vote set off kind of like this reaction almost that uh, ended up having a major impact. Right. And so this, then that's just one single vote. Now imagine if you had four or right. 10 or 300 people in a room in Syria um, in a coordinated fashion voting and swiping right and, and retweeting these messages. And you'll see what ends up happening is that the social media systems take that data and they use it as initial impressions. Like this content, which I don't know anything about, must be interesting. Mm. It must be funny or cute or of some kind of innate quality that they can't understand. No one really understands what makes a picture good or not. And people are liking it, so we're going to show it to more people. And if more people see it, more people have a chance to like it. And that snowball effect is what... Um, is uh, what ends up happening. Mm. Um, so that was uh, back in the, the rise of, of ISIS. Since then, your work uh, has included work with the uh, Air Force Office of Scientific Research, Army Research Office, um, DARPA, uh, the list goes on. So you've looked at this intently for a long time. And so I'm going to ask, <laughs> in your time, and maybe it's an obvious question, in your time looking at this from when you started to now, is the problem better or or worse or the same? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Is it better or worse? Um, b- both. Uh, I suppose uh, in some ways it is better. And the reason that is because we have folks studying this. Mm. So we understand it now. The social media companies are starting to understand it and, and figure it out. And they're, they're also one of the most important things that social media companies – are starting to realize that they have an important role to play in just civilized discourse. And they, they didn't think they had that before. Right. Now they know that they do have that responsibility. So that's better. We also know human behavior a little bit better and how the, what the problem is. Um, and so that's good. Now worse in the fact that everyone is getting into this business. In fact, you can actually go now and buy votes and retweets and swipe rights and likes. Um, it doesn't cost a whole lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, we did a, I, I consulted with a, a, some investigative journalists uh, out of the UK. Uh, and what they did is they wrote, um, this was actually during the Brexit vote or right before the Brexit vote. And they wrote this article about, um, it was about Brexit. It was, I think it was pro Brexit and it was just a garbage article. It was, it made, and at the end it was just basically them pounding on the keyboard. If you look at this article, <laughs> um, just garbage. And it was written by a professor who doesn't exist at a, from a university that doesn't exist. And they spent, I think it was $200 and got several hundred people to in a coordinated fashion, like this post. And um, at the end of the day, of course, if you get, 200 people to do a thing, it's trending, it's on the front page, um, and it stayed on the front page for probably maybe 12, 14 hours. Wow. And 
there was a discussion around it about how this fake professor is either right or wrong. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see that it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. $200 to drive this message and start a conversation based upon something completely made up. Right. And, you know, you and I, I chuckle at that, but, you know, you think about the implications and it's, and it's not so funny. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, so what's going on here? I wonder if we could talk about the actual uh, problem, the scientific um, problem, if you will. I think a lot of us know some of the terms, algorithms, uh, engagement, things like that. But uh, I, I would like to hear kind of a, a diagnostic explanation of, of how this is happening. Yeah, so one thing that a lot of people probably don't know, there's, there's, there's a term called path-dependent effects. Hmm. And what is it happening is that if, when you're doing a scientific survey, they're asking you questions about what is your opinion on this and what is your opinion on that, and they usually randomize that order. And the reason they randomize the order in the questions is because if you ask one question, you ask a person a thing, it frames psychologically the next thing. Um, so randomizing the order in scientific surveys is very important. Social media is a survey. It is a survey that they're asking you questions. What is your opinion on this thing? Like it or don't. What is your opinion on this thing? Hmm. And it's not random. What you see depends on the votes of your neighbors and your friends. And that's what I mean by path dependent is, is the, the, the trajectory of this bit of content is not random. It depends upon the votes of other things. And so what ends up happening is that if you get a handful of people to vote on a thing, it kind of, for lack of a better term, gooses it. It kind of, it, it, it spins it up and gets into the top, you know, around 100 or something. And from there, we all do the rest of the work. Then it becomes, if the bots or the people who can spend $200 um, on getting something kind of into the conversation, then it becomes regular people, you and me and your uncle Jim and, and your aunt uh, Barbara, they are now seeing this and they are spreading it. Um, and the reason they were able to see it is because someone else liked it. So the bottom line here is that it's important to realize that we collectively, you and I, Andy and Tim, and our neighbors and our friends and our family, we are all the editors of our friends' news feeds. And that's a responsibility that we didn't know what we had. And yet it's a responsibility that we had to kind of take seriously. We are probably the biggest problem. The bots are a problem, the coordinated actors are a problem, but we, the well-meaning individuals, do most of the, most of the bad work. Hmm. And the reason is because we don't read before we share. So because of all these experiments, we did another experiment. And what we did is we, we went online and we asked people, um, hey, do you mind if we follow you and just kind of like just watch your social media usage? So we watched, we used another computer program that watched 300 people and their social media behavior. Um, and it was all anonymous. We don't know who these people were. All we know is that they're, real people browsing Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and, and Instagram. One of the things that we found from that study is, is, is over a year. Was, we were watching these people for a year. And one of the things we found from that study is that um, most people 
don't click on anything. They go to social media and they just browse. Right. And I, I, you can't see me on, um, on the, on the podcast, but I remember one time talking to my wife and we were just on the couch and she was kind of doing this kind of scroll motion on her phone. Yep. She takes her feet from the bottom and she scrolls up on the <laughs> phone. And then she's, you know, she's scrolling. And I ask her a question and she looks at me and she keeps scrolling. And she's, talking, <laughs> and she's talking to me and we're having a conversation and she's still scrolling on her phone. <laughs> It's kind of a tactile motion that we all kind of do. Yep. Roll. And we read headlines. And we don't ever actually click and read any news stories. We just read headlines. And so one of the things we found, I think it was uh, 80% or, or, or more of all social media sessions result in no clicks. Hmm. Now, when people actually do click, it's usually to vote. So by vote, me like or swipe right or, yep. or you know, double just double tap to like, I think, on Instagram. Um, and so one of the things we found is that when people like or retweet a post, they do it almost always without actually reading the post. And so it was 75%. On Twitter, it was 75%. On Reddit, it was 74% of all votes occur without the user ever clicking on the post. Hmm. They read the headline, maybe look at a picture, and then based upon that, they retweet it or like it or whatever. And then we wonder, where's all this fake news coming from? <laughs> it's, it's us. It's you and me, Andy. We're doing it because we don't, we're not intentional about the things that we share. Now, on Facebook, it's even worse. On Facebook, um, I didn't do this study, but I remember reading a, a report. It was 96% of all likes and shares on Facebook were committed without the user clicking on the thing. Hmm. They read the headline and they like it or share it. Hmm. And that, that's the crux of the problem. Um, and so that's, that's something that we're aware of now. And social media companies are aware of, and that's something that they're trying to kind of address now. I wonder if you have an example or two of the types of content that um, really are being created for this purpose of getting that that vote, that like or share. Because as you said, no one's reading. And so what are the types of images? Do you have an example through your research of the types of images, the types of headlines that are that are really um, kind of sensational and in, in driving this trend? Yeah, so that's a great question. One of the things that I is particularly concerning uh, more recently is this idea of, of what's called pink slime journalism, mm. which is exactly to that point. It, these are um, so that, you know, click, clickbait's one thing. Clickbait is there to drive people to the site, but you can't. Those are the headlines like um, "There are four celebrities you won't believe number three. Right. So you have to click whatever. That's that's clickbait, but that's not particularly malicious or concerning. That's just annoying. Um, the, the really concerning stuff is where um, these are headlines that drive political narratives. Um, and they're usually done by uh, news organizations that don't exist. And so, for example, there was a story um, that was on NBC. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say the news site because um, I don't want your readers going to it. <laughs> 
Um, it was on, it was, is NBC something, something news.com. And, um, it was out of Elkhart, which, um, is a small town just east of Notre Dame, yep. just east of Elkhart. And what, one thing that's important to realize is that in the past 10, 15 years, all of these small town newspapers have gone under. So the Elkhart truth used to be a vibrant newspaper and now it's really just kind of hanging on by a thread. And even South Bend, which is a, a medium-sized city, the South Bend Tribune is just kind of barely hanging on because of Facebook and social media has taken up all their market share. Mm-hmm. And so there's a vacuum of local news that's kind of been left. And what's filling that vacuum are these fake sites. So this, this website pur- um, purporting to be the NBC broadcasting station out of Elkhart was reporting um, vigilantism. There was a story about how uh, there's a man who found um, his daughter's rapist and beat him up and killed him. And they were lauding. They were like, this is this is wonderful. Good for this person to catch um, his daughter's rapist and kill the rapist. Vigilante justice. Right. And his website looked legit. It even had the NBC peacock on it. Everything looked fine. However, if you were to go to... Um, uh, if you were to be in Indianapolis, there would be the same site, about, but it was only from – it was out of Bloomington, not Elkhart. Oh. If you go to New York, it was the same story, but it was out of White Plains. If you were in San Francisco, the same story, but it was out of Palo Alto, oh. a small town that no longer has a vibrant newspaper – there's this vigilante justice that's happening. What's happening is that there's some cabal, there's some coordinated actor that's creating these things and setting these sites up to be in happening in small towns adjacent to large population centers. And you rinse and repeat, there are 10,000 of these websites wow. that are spreading these headlines that of stories that don't actually happen in order to... Why vigilante justice? That's a social malady. I, I don't know why vigilante justice in this particular case, but you rinse and repeat with political stories or anti-vaccination stories or pick your political right. you know, um, topic of the day and you can make fake headlines out of this. And then because people don't actually read, they just see the headline, these stories spread on social media like wildfire. Mm-hmm. And they're fake and made up. And uh, by sources that look legit but don't actually exist. I want to talk about um, another kind of uh, field in in this uh, topic, and, and that is the subject of deep fake videos. And yeah. um, I'm going to struggle to to define the other thing I'm talking about, but it's essentially manipulated audio or or something like that. I have in my mind. Um, you know, you, you've seen reports, and I'm using air quotes, even though folks can't see me, of uh, a chant involving the president that, that has come up at sporting events. Uh, even yeah, I have seen this. This is expletive Joe Biden. Yes, exactly. So, so what, what's going on? And, and those are, in my mind, similar but 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 different. So, I'm interested in, in your take on on, on that yeah. sort. So there's, there's two topics here. So one is the um, deep fakes, which we'll, well, I guess we'll come back to in a little bit, but. Um, this the the uh, expletive Joe Biden chance right. Um, so I, I, there was a story recently. I remember seeing um, 
since I'm at Notre Dame, I you know see the Notre Dame news, and there was a story about how at the Wisconsin versus Notre Dame game, which was in Chicago, there was this F, sorry, <laughs> Joe Biden chant, right, right, and um, that it was making the rounds, and so he was like, "Wow, look at this! Everyone hates Joe Biden. Um, you love him or hate him or indifferent, uh, doesn't matter." But the 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 problem here is that I was at that game, I was in the stands. That didn't happen. <laughs> there was no chant. Um, but what ends up happening is that people with political agendas can very easily take a chant that might have happened at somewhere else and superimpose the audio onto a video of the camera panning across the crowd. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that is not a deep fake. That is ridiculously simple to do. That's a shallow <laughs> fake. That's just someone with five minutes of time. Yep. Um, can do that. And then, of course, they can share this and no one's the wiser. They say, oh, this is terrible. And that, of course, because because no one wants to actually dive any deeper and do the research and, and, and validate the sources, people will take that and say, oh, this must be true. Um, and it's difficult even to fact check because, I mean, it's not necessarily like a news event. It's just someone's, you know, their, their video from their phone. Right. And yeah, and that's a, a really interesting uh, artifact of, of technology nowadays. Now, um, on to deep fakes. Um, I think deep fakes are going to be a potential issue, but I've been, I haven't really seen any recently. Mm. Um, in, it's now 2020, it's October 2021, and I have been told to worry about deep fakes for the past five years. <laughs> um, and I still haven't realized, there's a handful, but all the deep fakes I've seen are well, look at this technology. This is going to change everything. I've been hearing that for the past five years. I'm still waiting on deepfake technology to actually cause some kind of disruption. Um, I haven't seen it yet. What I have seen are more akin to shallow fakes and memes right. where someone takes a thing um, and they just very clearly edit it. So I've seen I've seen pictures of Donald Trump um, uh, his head superimposed upon like this, uh, this giant um, uh, muscular man's body uh, driving a tank. Right. <laughs> and it clearly did. It's clearly fake. Right. It's, it's not, no one thinks that that's true, but it drives a message of Donald Trump is a leader and a strong man. And the same thing with, I've seen Joe Biden in similar kind of heroic fakes. Mm-hmm. Then of course I've seen pictures of Joe Biden uh, wearing a diaper and then uh, Donald Trump sucking his thumb. Right. These are they're clearly fake. No one believes them to be real, but they're telling a story and people are sharing these. And it's 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 these types of politically salient images are part of our it's, it's how we converse now online is through these images. And that, well, what we're concerned about is coordinated efforts to drive that conversation. And what Notre Dame is actually doing now, um, our current research is what we're calling media forensics. And so we can take a look at a picture or a video or an audio stream and we can determine not only has this been faked, has this been altered or slowed down or spliced or cropped or whatever, but we can also say who did it. Mm. We can say that this was done by people using what software? from, uh, and usually we can say from what region of the world. 
And so we can take a look at this and we say, you know what, there are 10,000 images that have this symbol that are that is superimposed upon it. Um, and we can say, you know what, this is all coming from the same building in Syria. Hmm. And then maybe we can do something about that. So the media forensics that we're working on is using the most advanced artificial intelligence technology to try to wade through the deluge of images and media and video that you find online and look for coordinated campaigns. I, I, I want to be clear. You mentioned you're looking for coordinated campaigns, and that mm-hmm. seems to me uh, something different than, um, or I should say that seems to me a, a safeguard against uh, hindering free speech. But I guess my question is how, how do you, how do you um, control for, for free speech um, in, the, in, that, yeah. in that work? It, and that's a, good, that's a great question. And so that's, I'm an extreme free speech advocate. If you want to create a fake image of um, your favorite or least favorite politician, you are welcome to do so. Um, and you were to put that out there on social media, we would probably end up downloading it and saying, you know what, this has been altered, it's fake. And But you're allowed to make fake. You're allowed to lie on social media. There's no law against that. Right. Uh, America, that's another problem we're talking about. It is actually illegal to lie on social media in certain countries. And I am on another project with the State Department and fighting those laws. Hmm. Try to make it legal, actually, to, for better or for worse to lie on social media because hmm. free speech is free speech. But what, what we can't tolerate is um, countries and uh, organizations that are trying to, in a coordinated fashion, manipulate um, the social uh, conversation. Right. If we have people wanting to do that on their own, organically, fine. But if Russia or China or some other kind of shady organization wants to do that, we need to call them out to say, hey, you need to, you need to knock that off um, because that is, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's modern warfare. Mm. Um, this information operations, influence operations is how the hearts and minds will be won in the next several decades. And right, right now um, – democracy and democratic uh, countries are, are having a hard time fighting that because we're vulnerable to those types of things because we're so free and that freedom provides vulnerabilities. And so we're trying to have these, create these tools to level the playing field to say, we're able to call out when these countries are behaving badly. Hmm. So that's the goal. We're developing these tools. We're working with, like you said, um, different um, organizations to, to create and develop these tools Um but also, it's a it's a very important question of balancing the freedom of speech with um, the the ability to detect and uncover these these coordinated campaigns. Right, and then and then, I guess relatedly and sticking with uh, the subject of your work and the tools you're helping to create, we have seen lately, uh, recently, platforms. I'm thinking of Facebook. I'm thinking of Twitter that have added a. Uh, kind of a pop-up or a warning before someone shares something that says basically, hey, you want to read that? So this is some of the impact that we're having in Notre Dame is that we're we're affecting 
slowly but surely we're learning different ways of trying to to change the trajectory of the misinformation landscape and so because of that uh, um, Twitter and Facebook um, will not well Facebook or sorry Twitter for example will if you try to retweet something Twitter will ask you hey are you sure you haven't read this yet are you sure you want to retweet this um, that's fantastic that's exactly what we need um, on Facebook, I don't know if it's public or not, but it's going to be public now. Um, Facebook will uh, not count your like or your share in the same way if you do not read it first. So if you just if you browse the headline and you just like it, that like will not count in the same way as if you were to read and then like the post. Interesting. Uh, and that's a result of the research that's been done at Notre Dame and elsewhere for understanding how social media maladies happen. Do we, do we know, is it too early to tell, uh, I'm thinking mostly of Twitter here, is it too early to tell if that is having a dent in, in misinformation spread? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it is too early. I, I will say that getting people to slow down, so the academic research is clear. Getting people to slow down and think before they share has a huge impact. Mm-hmm. On the spread of social, uh, on the spread of misinformation, a huge uh, positive impact that slows the spread of misinformation. Um, on the social scale that Twitter operates, I have not seen any studies yet, but I would assume that I, I can't imagine that it would it would have any kind of harmful effects. Well, this is a bit of a, a detour, but I'm, I'll ask it. Your work has to intersect with um, psychologists, with uh, legal minds, um, just all kinds of disciplines all the time. It's not just, you know, the, the algorithms and, you know, the, the network systems at, at work here. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, computer scientists are traditionally ones where like computer programmers, right? And so you think of the kind of the, the black hacker screen and we're trying to hack into stuff. That's, that's the traditional computer scientist mm-hmm. um, image, I think in most people's heads. Um, in fact, what what happens is that computer scientists are concerned with how the technology gets used by people. Um, so a lot of computer science work that's happening now is how do people interact with and use, and how does it affect the social fabric of things? So we do collaborate often. There's, in fact, there's there's a dozen different institutes and centers that I'm involved with at Notre Dame and elsewhere that are looking at, um, so for example, the, at Notre Dame, we have the new Lucy Institute of Data and Society. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that Notre Dame is doing. So it's, it's the Institute of Data and Society. Not just computer science and data science, but how it interacts with society. We have the new Institute, or the, sorry, it's the Center for Tech, Tech Ethics. Yep. So the Technology Ethics Center is a Notre Dame initiative for understanding how technology is used in the ethical outcomes of that technology. And this is, like you said, bringing together um, experts in law, psychology, sociology, not just at Notre Dame, but elsewhere um, throughout the world. Um, we host workshops and get-togethers and meetings and conferences all the time with people from across the world, not just in academia, but um, with uh, the social media companies as well. In fact, um, the Shamrock series in New York three years ago, um, we had a, a panel with um, – Journalists, the head of um, the misinformation or the information integrity team at YouTube, and myself, um, just talking and working together to try to figure out some of these problems. 
Mm. And so it's not just an academic exercise. It's not just a computer science problem, but it, it's, it takes understanding humans, which is, that's hard, and understanding how they use technology in broader society. Um, so kind of a whole of academia and whole of society kind of effort to tackle this problem. Last question I'll ask you. Um, so before the 2016 election, you predicted that uh, there was a, a decent likelihood that a, a foreign actor, especially Russia, uh, may interfere with the election. Uh, I'm going to ask you to um, pull out your crystal ball and give us uh, a prediction now. Where is this going? What do you see in the next two to five years? Yeah, in the short term, um yeah, so I, I got that one right. Um, I remember actually we talking to the FBI and to the DOD about, hey, I think, I think this is going to be a problem. This is now four or five years ago. Um, and um, I never wish I was wrong uh, mm-hmm. so much as I wished five years ago. But um, it, it, all the signs were pointing in, the, in that direction. Uh, now, fast forward five years for, you know, to today – the signs are pointing towards people having a better understanding of this. Mm. People are starting to slow down and question and think, is this source legitimate? Is it true? Is, is this piece of information? Because no one likes to be duped, right? No one likes to be lied to. Um, and I think that we're starting to kind of figure it out. And the same thing happened in the history of just information, um, think about back um, with the, 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 the mission of the printing press, right? We printed the Bible first, right? As, you know, as, 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 as much you know, fact and ethos as you can kind of muster, the Bible is the most important thing. Let's print that first. But then after that, people were able to print anything and everything they wanted. And there were, there were newspapers um, galore. So there was this promise of this, this, this printing press that could, that could produce knowledge and then what we ended up using it for was just spreading a bunch of just garbage around. Mm-hmm. And then it took us probably, you know, a couple of decades to figure it out. Professional journalism was born. Newspapers were kind of coalesced and ethics and standards were generated. And then now the Internet was born. And initially it was a place for good, solid information, conversation, um, Wikipedia and, and all of that, the promise was there. But then of course, what ends up happening, people find a way to corrupt it. Mm-hmm. And the tragedy of the commons surfaces once again. And slowly, I believe over the next several decades, we will figure it out. Um, we will understand a new professional ethics and standards and social mores will be invented and created and, and kind of coalesce and we'll, we'll figure it out. Now, there's going to be growing pains in the meantime. Mm-hmm. We've seen the growing pain, pains of coordinated, you know, information warfare over the past, you know, five years. And in the next five years, there's going to be more growing pains. I foresee in the next election cycle um, a lot more imagery being used for uh, politically salient imagery. So people will be faking, cropping, altering, creating memes um, as a mode of communication. Hmm. So not so much news stories, headlines, because, you know, social media companies are figuring out ways of, hey, don't retweet this until you read it. Mm-hmm. But an image just appears on the site. 
right? This, this is not a matter of clicking through to read it. It's just, it's there. So images and videos will be used, I think, much more frequently as the primary mode of communication. And the forensics and understanding of, of what the is communicating, those images are communicating, will be important. Um, I foresee heavily altered and doctored images and videos making the rounds, not saying that this thing actually happened. Um, so people won't believe that it's real, but people will be sharing them knowing that it's fake. Hmm. As if communicating their allegiance to some, you know, uh, some organization or another. And actually, that's, that's a side point to that, is if you ask people, do you share misinformation? Um, almost everyone will say, no. No, I don't share misinformation. It's, it's always, you know, someone else that does it. But then if, we, if you say, um, if you confront someone, and I didn't do this research, but I, I read about it, um, now this is a few months ago. If you confront someone and say, hey, this piece of, mis- this piece of uh, information that you shared was false. It was proven false and it's been fact-checked to be false. Why did you share it? And people eventually, if you ask the right questions, will admit to being, um, I shared it as a way of um, signaling that I'm part of the group. Hmm. So I might not believe that um, that uh, the Notre Dame Wisconsin game, they actually chanted um, this, this uh, exclusive Joe Biden, but I will share that as a signal that I believe I'm one of the group. Hey, everyone like me, I'm part of the group. Huh. So people share things, not because they think that they're true, but as a social signal to signal that they're part of the in-group. And that is going to continue to happen. People are going to share things amongst their own group and it's going to radicalize, not radicalize exactly, but it'll kind of bootstrap additional sharing and misinformation within that group. Um, and then the further creation of fakes and the further sharing of altered images. Um, that's my prediction. Hmm. Now, will it be Russia and China and Malaysia or whoever, Hong Kong? I don't know. I'm just making up in countries by this point. Um, probably to some effect. Um, but I think that we will do most of it ourselves. Hmm. And that's always been true. Um, Russia, China, these coordinated actors, they might get it started, but we are the primary movers of disinformation through our likes and our shares. I said it before, I'll say it again. We are the editors of our friends' news. And it's a responsibility that we have to take seriously uh, if we were to solve this problem. As you said, it's going to be a a hard ship to turn, but you think most of us will will eventually figure it out. Yeah, I think we're going to figure it out. I can't predict exactly how. It's going to happen, but we have our brightest minds on this, uh, working on this, not just uh, in academia, but um, the best and brightest technology folks, AI folks, the people in this um, different uh, levels of government um, at industry, um, all working on it. And to be honest, we kind of have to fix it because <laughs> if we don't, we're all in trouble just right. as a society. Right, the, the fabric of information breaks down, then the fabric of society breaks down. Yeah. So, and that's actually one of the things. And I, the last point I want to make is that um, what we're doing at Notre Dame uh, also is we're running a large media literacy program. That uh, when people come online to Facebook and Twitter, especially 
in countries where the media, like the traditional media is not so strong, folks don't know that a lot of the stuff they're seeing is garbage or fake. They don't understand that this image can be altered um, because they just haven't been exposed to that kind of thing before. Mm -hmm. So our job at Notre Dame has been to create commercials, basically, that run on television, radio, and internet uh, on social media platforms that say, welcome to social media. Um, most of what you see is wonderful and useful, but a lot of what you see is, is fake, and here's how it's fake and why it's fake, so, so that they can be aware of the problems and perils of social media so they don't fall victim in the same way that some of the you know, America really did um, mm -hmm. five years ago. Important work. Tim Winninger, thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to Tim Winninger and to you for listening to this episode of Notre Dame Stories. Our show is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour.